Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. This week's guest is Nick Brown. Nick is Deputy Team Leader for Bodywork and Crash Structures at McLaren Racing. He tells us about his many years in education, as well as his favourite project at McLaren so far. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Engineering Stories. I am Alex Michelson. I'm the Head of Research and Development at Silver Fox. Alongside me today, I've got Nicoletta. Hello, my name is Nicoletta Catalina and I am a second year on Electrical and Electronic Engineering at the University of Greenwich. And our guest today is Nick Brown. Nick? Do you want to introduce Hi, yourself? Alex. Hi, Nicoletta. Yes. Um, so my name is Nick Brown. I'm a uh, senior designer at McLaren Racing. So that's within the, the Formula One team that you, uh, you see racing on TV. Brilliant. Do you want to tell us a bit about that role then? Yeah, sure. So I, I work in the uh, bodywork and crash structures team. So uh, within that, we cover the design. So everything from the wetted surface, which is released to us, and we then design the parts, um, how they're going to be made, what materials they're made of, how they assemble onto the car, and release all of that information to our, our production team to make them. And it covers everything, mostly aerodynamic. So from the front wing, the nose box, uh, barge boards and floor, general bodywork panels and the rear wing uh, of the car. So most of the stuff you, you get to see on TV. Well, is it is it difficult? I, I know there's lots of, I don't know, accusatory rule bending um, within sport, especially F1. Is, there, is it difficult to keep within those? Uh, it is and it isn't. You can, everyone can, can stick within the rules and everyone tries to stick within the rules. Um, I think it's, it's hyped up in the media a lot more than what is actually happening, happening um, because we're, we're trying to push performance. So we're trying to push everything to the edge of what we're allowed to do. And sometimes things don't always operate exactly how you design them, um, as all engineers will know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes things can, can fall foul um, of certain regulations but I think I don't think anyone's out there trying to uh, cheat the rules in any way I think that would be that'd be silly for any team to do um, and especially with regards to rules on safety because they're there to keep the drivers safe and you know that's the ultimate aim is it's a sport to entertain but it's to keep the safety aspects as well and F1 pioneers a lot of technology but also a lot of safety that transfers into other industries and how how did you get into the into the role was it was f1 always the dream or was it an accident uh, yeah, that you now so love i think it it was a dream i think when i young when i was younger i liked to watch it i i knew of the sport i don't think i had any clue of how to get into the sport the jobs within it um so i don't think it was even a realistic sort of thought in my head um, I've got a, a Lego F1 car actually just next to me, which I probably built when I was sort of 12 or 13. Um, and again, didn't really think about getting into the industry um, until I was sort of more at university level um, and I made some applications then. Um, as you can imagine, it's quite a competitive field to try and get into. There's only a finite number of F1 teams. Um, so I didn't get in at that, that point. 
uh, went away and did a bit more studying. I went and did a, another degree, did my doctorate, um, and had another chance, basically. A, an opportunity came up when I came to the end of that, and I managed to convince them to, to give me a job, give me a chance, and I've been in the industry since. So what was your first degree then? Uh, so I studied aeronautical engineering at Loughborough University, and I did wow. that. I, this is funny, I originally thought three years, I'll do a bachelor's. Three years sounds like a long time. I'll finish when I'm 21, and then I'll, I'll try and find a job in the, you know, the big world. And then, yeah, I signed up for a placement year, then transferred on to the master's. Um, within that so I spent the full five years there in the end which I, I never thought I'd do at the beginning um, but I'm really glad I did I really enjoyed it it was it was difficult and I think I listened to one of your earlier podcasts I think it was Dan Floyd um, talking about just the amount of maths he's had to sort of restudy um, to get through his engineering stuff and god the maths in the first couple of years is just mind-boggling I, don't that, know if you I was good at maths same. I was good at math until engineers took out numbers and started replacing it with, with symbols and equations. And I just, I couldn't, I really struggled getting my head around it. Um, so I think when people say, are you good at maths? I say, I'm good at numbers. And that's, that's where we leave it. Yeah, exactly. It starts to get, yeah, it's quite mind blowing what, what people can do with maths, numbers and letters. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my, my first degree there. And I think I got offered a, a PhD at the end of it, and asked to stay on, but the thought of doing a PhD again at that point in time was like, no, I'm, I'm ready to go out and get a job. I don't want to stay at university anymore. And then a year later, yeah, I ended up doing uh, an engineering <laughs> doctorate, which is a slightly different version. Is it an engineering doctorate that a general, or you had a specific field? Uh, so, Instead of a PhD, it was a, an ENGD, they're called. And oh. the field was uh, generally micro and nanomaterials, but specifically looking at uh, composites, so carbon fibre composites. Um, and I had a project to make holes with, with composites, but not machining them and cutting them out. The idea was that I would pierce holes in these sheets to keep the carbon fibres more intact and hold more of the strength properties. That so sounds like a long study. Yeah, it was, it, it's four, it was four years. Um, and yeah, PhDs are generally three years. And I think we, the engineering doctorate was four because you're, you're based at your sponsor company. So you, you get a bit more time to, to do work with them as well. And that, that was the best of both worlds for me. I, I didn't want to be purely academic based. I wanted to be based within the real world. So I, I worked with the Welding Institute in Cambridge and I was with the University of Surrey so I'd come down and do short courses down there whilst working sort of full-time up on their campus doing the research for them. Was that was that difficult balancing well I mean I think we'll we'll probably talk about um, balancing because I know you've had it recently had a baby so that's a new new thing to balance life with um, <laughs> but was it difficult then balancing work and work work and study uh, yes and no but because I, I had the time off I, I was working on my research project so it was all part of the same thing and then I would 
I would go back for intensive two-week courses. So we would have nine to five lectures for two weeks solid. We'd do a coursework module and then that was it. We would go back and, and do my, my job um, as it was back at the sponsor company. So that wasn't particularly difficult in that time, I would say, to balance. Um, it got a bit more tricky when I got my job at McLaren because I hadn't finished my PhD or my, yeah. my doctorate at that point. So I, my course four-year funding ran out in October um, and then I, got, I started my job with McLaren in the November. But I didn't hand in my thesis until I think it was March, April the next year. Um, maybe even later than that, I can't remember now. So that was, that was tricky because I was learning a new job, working quite a lot of hours to try and keep the job there and prove my worth but then trying to write up my thesis to about midnight most nights as well. So when you got the job at McCarran, was it on the assumption that you had your NGD or were they impressed with you before that? Uh, well, hopefully the latter. <laughs> hopefully I convinced them <laughs> otherwise. So, I, yeah, I'd already started before I finished my, my NGD. So, yeah, hopefully I'd, I'd convinced them enough that I, I knew what I was talking about without the, the final qualification. Um, and by that point in, in the doctorate, you know, I'd done most of my learning and done most of my work. It was just a case of getting it into the report, which is quite a long one for a, a doctoral thesis, trying to summarise four years of work. Um, but as you guys will know, I think you, you often you know the results, you know everything you, you know about the project before you've written the thing up. And us engineers like yeah. to take our time writing stuff. Well, I think That's the most difficult part, to sit down and write it. Yeah, I, yeah, I think if write it in a concise way as well. I think if I read back my my dissertation or my final year project now, I think that I'd be quite imp oh not embarrassed, but uh, I don't think it would make a huge lot of sense to me. Uh, <laughs> probably because I it was long nights and, and long days um, in the library. Um, yeah, to crack it out. even reading back your own things the next day sometimes don't make any sense, do they? No. So, so you've got uh, an NGD in materials. Yeah, well, yeah, in? micro and micro and nanomaterials, I suppose. Micro, and is that is that your your passion in engineering? Um, yeah, I think the materials side of it is, and it's it wasn't. I don't think when I was younger, but since joining that that doctoral process and and the Welding Institute. It, it opened a lot up to me that I wasn't even aware of. It was, you know, how much can change on a micro scale in a material to change the whole performance of that that material and the parts involved with it was was quite impressive. Um, mm. And that's what impressed me about about the place. I was working as a teacher at the time, and we went on a visit to that company, and I thought, oh, actually, it'd be quite interesting to work here. I put in my speculative application and that's how I found out about the, the engineering doctorate. They said, okay, well, we've got these doctorates. Are you interested in one of those? Um, wow. And yeah, I, I carried on down that way. So it wasn't really a planned a planned route, but it opened my eyes to that, that materials science. And I think the, the public's been shown and opened that door with the, the discovery of graphene uh, a few years ago. And everyone 
you know, everyone was talking about materials. Everyone was talking about, you know, graphene is this wonder stuff, which is a, you know, a, a nanomaterial, basically. Mm. Um, and it, it, it sparks, yeah, I think a lot of interest within a lot of people because everyone interacts with materials every day. Everything you touch, everything you, from what you put on in the morning to your car, your driving, the food you eat, it's all made up of a, a structure and a material that, that interacts in a certain way. And, and how how much do you think F1 is, is contributing to that, that development of, of new materials and pushing pushing that? Do you think we'll ever see, I don't know, a, a regular car? And I know supercars and hypercars are made of carbon fibre. Do you think we'll ever see a regular car made of carbon fibre? Uh, definitely, definitely. And I think we're we're at a point now where it's becoming even more relevant because the electric vehicle market is... You know, starting to boom if it's not booming already, and it's a very weight-conscious thing to be to have an electric vehicle. It's all all your consumption and everything is based on how much weight you have in your car, and that's something we've been doing in F1 for years. Is trying to to reduce the weight of our cars to get the most performance out of it. So, I think it's a matter of it's only a matter of time, and not a very long time before we've got you know, full carbon fiber cars running around the roads in, in much larger quantities hmm. one thing i have always wondered about f1 car weights is you've got your car which you work very hard on shaving millimeters and grams off and probably milligrams off but then you get a driver who turns up with long hair on one weekend or a beard does that not really detri- isn't that not to the detriment of the car <laughs> I suppose, yeah, in a in a pure performance way, definitely. Um, but the drivers, so the car has a minimum weight that it can be. So you're aiming to be under that weight so you can ballast your car back up to that weight. Okay. Um, but the drivers also have a minimum weight, and I think that's that's a, a very good thing for their own health sort of point of view as well, because you might have a very short, thin driver naturally going up against a very tall driver and it's not too fair to ask that tall driver to have to get themselves down to a certain weight that matches a, a smaller person um, yeah so there is a minimum weight on that which i think is, is good i don't think it's very much though still because it, it considers all of their kit as well so um i don't do much on driver weight targets but i'm sure no they have i can imagine some, but it's, some it's, it's something i've always wondered is um is is the beard slash hair debacle <laughs> and maybe you know maybe in a title fight you don't know maybe lewis hamilton versus max maybe it will come down to who's who's willing to shave their head and uh cut the weight yeah maybe who gone who i don't know whether you can say officially but who do you want to win are you allowed oh. to say that as a fan yeah i suppose as a fan um I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. As a as a fan, Lewis is a an English driver, a British driver. I'd like to see yeah. that from that side of things. But as, at the same time, it's nice to have a bit of a change. Maybe if Red Bull can do that. Um, yeah, it's 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 too hard to call, isn't it? I think. It is. Um, I'd rather it was one of our drivers, to be honest. If Lando or you guys or have. Lando I mean, you guys have done. The best you've done in a long time this year, haven't you? Yes, yeah, we've had a we've had a good run, uh, definitely 
partway through the, the year, we've had some great results and, and getting the one, two result in Monza was just, yeah, it was fantastic. I don't think anyone in the team can explain how much that meant to, to everyone as a group. You know, we've had, I joined, I think when it was probably one of the lowest points um, and we were finishing almost last in the, the championship. And then to now to, to get a one, two, both cars, sort of top result you can get. Yeah, it was just great. And it was a real, you know, pick me up for the team of just, this is what, yeah. what we've been working towards. And we're, you know, we're not that far away. We can, we can have a taste of that. So let's keep pushing to do that. Have you noticed, since you've started working in this industry, have you noticed or have you felt like it has changed a lot? Uh, in terms of Formula One, um, yeah. it changes, I suppose it changes quite a lot year on year with regulation changes. So the, the governing bodies change, change the rules to keep things competitive, to keep us always on our toes and developing stuff. Um, but and also from a safety point of view as well. So that's that's one of the really good things is that everything is learned from if there's ever an incident that uh, they're not quite happy with from a safety point of view then new rules will come in the next year to, to try and fix that try and make sure that we're designing everything to to do that so we're having to push the limits to fit that into the car which might try and be the same weight as the previous year but it's x amount more safe in in certain conditions Mm. Um, Do you find this challenging or exciting, the fact that it's changing so often? A bit of both. It's, it's definitely challenging. It's, um, yeah, when you, you're trying to push, you know, we, we're trying to design next year's car now and we've still got a car that's going around the racetrack and, and needs attention. Um, and it's, it's tricky to try and get all those timescales in because we're, we're basically designing a new car every year especially when there's a regulation change but it is exciting because it's as engineers you you want to design new things make new things see them and, and touch them and and watch them work so every year to get the chance to redo that each time is is exciting and mm. um, i'm not sure if we'd feel the same if we were winning each year because you'd, you'd there increases your chances of, of someone else doing something uh, better than you but that's that's the competition you, you know you're against everyone else you're trying to to beat the other teams silver fox proudly supports engineers with all their cable wire and pipe labeling requirements the fox in a box thermal printer has the ability to print a whole range of thermal labels with one software one printer and one ribbon saving loads of time for the engineers out there in the field for more information contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call on plus four four 01707-373727. So you mentioned redesigning. Do you pretty much give up on a car once it's hit the track? Or are you constantly developing um, that this year's car until the end of the season and then it's on to the next one? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. So from, from the outside, I think a lot of people think we design a car and there's two cars one for each driver and that car gets changed but it stays as a fundamental car but that's not really the case the cars are only really built up as a car at the track when they're ready to be run or very rarely at the factory but most of the other time they're in bits being transported around um, 
or replaced with other upgrades. So we're, we're never leaving a car as it is. We're always trying to push it because everyone else is trying to push the, the performance of the car. You're always trying to catch up with the leading teams or always trying to stay ahead. And that's just the philosophy. If you're not moving forward, the other teams are and they will catch you. The shark it's, philosophy. It's, yeah, yeah well, you can't sit still, especially not in F1 because yeah, people will catch you up and people will copy ideas. People will, any, any chance to learn from another team or learn from your own research is, is taken to, to get you up to competing. So when it comes to design, for example, would you keep certain ideas or components you feel they are fit as long as the regulation about that component doesn't change? Or uh, you just yes. redesign from scratch again? No, so it depends. It's a good question because it depends on how much the regulations changed. But F1 is very much a race of, against time because yeah. the races don't change and the calendar is, is the same for everyone. So you have a finite amount of time to get your design ready for that race. And that's, that's the difficulty we face for every upgrade, every part you design. So whatever you can learn from your previous part, um, if it's completely fit for purpose to carry on, then we will carry it on. But more often than not, there is a performance somewhere. We could take some weight out of it. We could do something a bit better. We could make it a bit faster or we could change the aerodynamic influence of something. So we will try to make all the tweaks we can to those parts. Is, is your future in F1? Is that your plan? Is that your goal? Are your goal is to progress through F1? Um, uh, is I it hope to, my future's in to F1. branch off. You yeah, hope it no, is. No, I, yeah, I definitely hope so. Um, I can't see any reason right now why I would move away from F1. It it excites me. It fascinates me. It it challenges me. Yes, and um, I think if if you're an engineer and you're you're not enjoying the challenge, I don't know if you're in the right right industry. Um, it's yeah it's something that i can't imagine moving away from to i go through we go through projects very quickly in the industry so it keeps me on my toes and i enjoy that um yes i think the, the stress levels can be a bit high and the, the pressure is quite high at certain times but it's it's part of the the challenge that, that we enjoy um as a team you know you're working together with everyone in a similar position uh, we're all wanting to make the car go faster. We're all working together to do that. Um, if you can do that and, and hit those those targets, then it's yeah, it's a great reward. Like we had in in Monza, you know, that's the reward. That's that's the taste of what what you get, and it feels great. That's what we we try to do. So I can't imagine moving away from that, to be honest. But you've you mentioned how competitive it is, and there's only currently ten ten teams in F1. Is there a lot of, obviously, we we in the media, we're media now, we're doing a podcast. Um, we see it as, you know, the drivers change teams quite relatively often, um, probably not as much as, as in some other sports. But is there a lot of switching behind the scenes as well? Do engineers swap teams? Uh, yeah, they do, they do. Um, and like you say, probably a lot more of that happens than is reported on. Um, because the teams are quite big, you know, you're in, you're into thousands of people um, that could be moving around, and you can't keep track of everyone and 
and it's not as exciting let's be honest as a driver changing a team as engineers changing teams I don't know for some of us you it might some, be <laughs> you get some headlines to be fair there's headlines of, of I think higher director level people moving around um, but yeah you're, you're right I think people do move around uh, quite a lot um, and maybe more so in the teams that are geographically located near each other it might be easier so people don't have to actually move home to change mm. teams yeah there um, is a, a hub down in, in Woking yeah, yeah there so, is a yeah, hub exactly. isn't there in like round Oxford in Oxfordshire exactly Banbury. yeah there's, there's the Oxfordshire Milton Keynes sort of F1 yeah. Valley there that most of the teams belong to um, and then we're yeah we're down closer to London obviously Ferrari is is over in Italy um, so there, there's a few different geographical issues around it as well um, but generally yeah people people will move around the teams as they as they'd like to um, but it's tricky because you you work so well with people in your team you build up quite a good relationship within that so I think for some people it's more difficult than others I'd, I'd definitely find that a difficult choice to make do you have a favorite project you worked on like a favorite car design or a favorite moment so far uh, yeah so I think one of one of my favorite um, projects was a, a rear wind project we did a, a few years ago and I was only talking about this the other day actually with um, the lead designer who worked on it with me it was um, we had this this rear wing main plane that we we really had to get to track to test it it was a, a new aero concept so we um, we managed to turn this around in a, a week from seeing the first surfaces that we got in in CAD uh, working on the design for a couple of days making sure it worked from a, a stress point of view getting it made over a weekend uh, assembled that that next week and shipped out to um, I can't remember where the race was but shipped out and, and on the car within yeah about seven days to then see it on TV sort of running around the track was quite quite a, a fun project and it really I think that showed you know the, the power of, of F1 when everyone really pulls together and moves mountains to make it work it really yeah it was a great project to be part of quite how, long ago, how long ago was that? Uh, probably two or three years ago I don't know, okay. time flies too quickly now. I can't believe <laughs> you know, we've been in COVID for two years. So it's probably three or four years ago now. It's crazy, isn't it? It came December 2019. That was the first case. That's why it's called COVID-19. We're now heading into yeah. 2022. Exactly. And now we can just say like it was offices. two pandemics ago. Yeah, and we're almost out of Greek letters um, to name yeah. it. Yeah, and it's, it's strange. It's just strange how long we've and how accustomed we are now to this working remotely. I mean, even this, I'm, I'm looking at you both sort of remotely on, on a screen, but it feels so normal. Whereas five yeah. years ago, yeah. it would have been absolutely mind blowing if someone said, this is how we'd be working for such a long yeah. time. We're actually yet to do a podcast uh, face to face. Quite, I'd quite like to do it, um, but obviously this has been a COVID project. And uh, as, as is every podcast, I think podcasts, the podcast market has become completely saturated during the last two years. Yeah. Everyone and their dog has a podcast now. Um, and Silver Fox has, has joined on the bandwagon. But so far, so good. Yeah, 
yeah and it's great and it, i think maybe it opens you up to more people because you don't have to travel you know i haven't had to take a day off you haven't had to take a day off to come and sit in yeah. the same place yeah. it definitely helps yeah, yeah. in that perspective yeah. And one that's, of that's our... one of the silver linings, I think, of the whole COVID situation, as, as terrible as it is, as a as a you know pandemic. The silver lining is is opening up all these different ways of working. Hmm. Being able to work from home, especially for me, having a, a young baby now, being able to be around more to help my wife is is something I didn't think would be possible three or four years ago. So, go on. As, as you've mentioned your baby, we'll skip to that question. Has it been tough balancing uh, work and your home life while work has been at home? Good question. Um, I think from the baby perspective, I this is our first our first child, so we don't know any different. So there's no mm. way of us knowing whether it was easier or more difficult. Um, it's probably a bit more difficult from the support point of view, just not having the ultimate freedom to have you know friends and family um, come over and, and interact more with them throughout the whole process. Um, but from a, a work point of view, I suppose, I'm not sure, I'm still a bit on the fence. So part of me, I love, I liked going into work and having that interaction with people in person. There's a certain mm. buzz being in the office, talking with people, learning and chatting and hearing what's going on in other conversations. But at the same time, not having to commute every day is, is quite nice. And and also the availability of people to do meetings and, and talk and share screens without having to all crowd around one screen is, is really useful as well. Um, yeah. I'm quite lucky that I've made my home office in what's almost a shed on the back of my house so I can compartmentalize it a bit easier when we first started my wife and i were both on the table yeah you leave the shed that's that's the day done that sort of yeah mess. yeah exactly yeah, yeah well, i like to try anyway but it's easy to sneak back out or check your phone yeah i think in engineering as well it's it's super key to have um that that face-to-face -face, um contact at like uh you know, or not key, but it's it's definitely a, a job where it's required more than others. My my girlfriend works in sales, and she's she loves working from home. She can do it. She just jumps on a call with someone, and that's it. But she doesn't have the interaction with her colleagues the same way I think a, an engineering team might. Yeah, and it's the casual conversations that that you would have, and it's the same, I suppose, you get at university as well, the casual conversations you might have after a lecture or after a project meeting or even having a project meeting. It's the, the little things where someone says, oh, actually, while you're here, can you have a look at this? Or can we talk about this? And that, mm. that spirals into something completely different. That's, yeah. that's the thing. I think everyone's conscious of missing. So how, how have you found having a kid, a, a daughter? What, what... Has it, has it been a challenge? Has it been fun? Yeah, I think all, all of the above. It's definitely a challenge. Um, and, you know, my wife's done a fantastic job with what she's done with her so far and raising her so far. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's, it's what you can't imagine, really. I don't think you could explain it. Um, 
to anyone who hasn't gone through it. It's, it's a challenge, but amazing at the same time. It's this mm. little human that you're, you're growing up and interacting with. And she starts, yeah, they get more and more interactive with you. And it just, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's quite a wonderful thing to happen, to be honest. But it is, it is, it's a tough challenge, I think, with that balance, as people call it, with work, which is something else you love and you're passionate about. Um, well, I'm lucky to anyway, in my case. And then family life as well. And you don't have an infinite amount of time in the day, the week or the year to spend all the time you would like to do with, with both. So that's that is a challenge definitely so how how do you make it work um i don't know i probably fumble my way through for most of it um i i try to spend as much time as i can you know supporting my wife and and helping with my daughter um but then when i'm at work you know i'm trying to give my my 100% at work so at the moment i do a morning shift where i i sit with my daughter in the morning for an hour or two while my wife has a bit of a sleep because she's, she's been up in the night with her. And then I, I do the handover and then go to work. If I'm in the office, I go to work. But if I'm at home, then I can obviously be a bit more help, hands-on help at home and come in at various points in the day and, and help her where I can. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm not, I'm not getting it right on all aspects, so it's, it's still a journey. Yeah, me and my girlfriend were, joined, joined the many and got a lockdown dog. Um, so I can mm-hmm. I can appreciate the the handover. I have to take her out in the mornings, and then I bring her back in, and then I go to work, and then I have to take her out when I come back. And it is it's a bit like how it is a bit like having a, a kid, um, but obviously with with I, I guess slightly less responsibility, um, and and commitment. You can <laughs> I don't, sort of I don't just... know if they they might wake up more in the night. I'm not sure. No, I bet, I bet you might not be able to leave them through the night either. I'm not sure. No, um, she goes in a crate, which is a bit like a, we'll call it a cot, um, and then uh, <laughs> we go out in the morning. But yeah, that that's been a a fun challenge as well, trying to balance that because yeah, it is like having a kid. Um, but yeah, they don't... something else you have to consider, don't you, when you you getting up in the morning you don't just get up and go to work yeah it's another challenge to do my girlfriend went away and took the dog with her and it was it was so nice i woke up on like saturday morning and i was like oh i could just stay here i don't have to take the dog out i can just have breakfast when i want (laughs) it was fantastic um which obviously isn't the same as kids if, if any children are listening um but yeah, it was it was very good. I don't know. I'm sure there's some parents that would quite enjoy it. It's um, it's quite nice to have a break. Yeah, I definitely see the relief in my wife's face if I if I give her a break sometimes. So, what advice would you give to the people who would like to follow your path into the career you're having right now? Uh, a good one, I suppose. I think I came through quite an unconventional route to get to, to where I was. I spent quite a long time studying, it was sort of nine years um, at university basically. Um, but a lot of the graduates who come in, you know, they're, they're straight in, straight out of their degree. Um, and it's a very competitive industry to get into, so I suppose just start working as early as you can on bolstering your 
your CV or your credentials or anything you can that you think will help you getting into a, uh, an F1 team. And there's quite a lot of initiatives that go on with F1. So there's F1 in schools where school teams will enter in these little um, car racing competitions with a, a, it's like a gas propellant, I think. And it's, you know, it's a very technical competition and they have a world championship for that. But then also there's Formula Student at university as well. So all of those things are progressive steps that show you what you know, the F1 philosophy and, and industry is about. They have their own regulations you design your car to. So they're, I think, great initiatives to be part of that I, I didn't uh, know about or I wasn't part of. Um, and then may, there's nothing stopping you looking at job adverts. You know, look at what adverts are out there now and see what they're looking for and, and do a bit of reflection on you know, what does my CV show or what do I want it to show that would get me that job? And can I do anything now to, to get that experience up or get something or talk to someone who might be able to help me? If it's a CAD designer, if it's aerodynamics, if it's you know, electrical design, if it's race mechanics. There's, and that's just, that's just the, the technical parts. There's all sorts of other support infrastructure crew and people that work in an F1 team. Um, and if that's your passion. Would you say hands-on experience give, gives you more of a boost than grades? Because you said you've studied for nine years, so you must have the grades in as well. But would you say the, the hands-on experience is better? Yeah, so well, well picked up on. I think what I mean by that is, is most people come out of university with, well, that want to enter the F1 engineering industry anyway, with an engineering degree. So that's almost, yeah. that's your tick box that you need. It's the differentiating parts, I suppose, which I'm talking about. So you obviously yeah. need to meet minimum criteria for a lot of these jobs. And that could be a degree, but it could be there's these high-level apprenticeships now. There's all sorts of other qualifications um, that might be different to, to the route I've come through. But it's, it's usually the extras that I think an F1 yeah. team would be looking for because the volume of applications is so large. They will say, OK, right, everyone who's got a degree, that's great. So what else have you got that shows us, you know, you've got this extra initiative, determination, resilience, everything that you What put you aside? Yeah, exactly. So what's going to pop you out of the page to say, that's someone we want to join our team? Good. Um, as, as you've mentioned the other routes, it's a question we haven't asked on this podcast for a while. But assuming the end was the same and you got to the same place you are now, would you have taken a different route? Would you have gone... I don't know, maybe done a PhD instead of an NGD, or would you have done an apprenticeship and then worked your way up that way? Yeah, good question. Um, not for me. I think I like you know, the route I've been on. I enjoyed and I learned a lot, and I wouldn't know or what I know now through the experience I've had. Um, and I know I've gone through a very classical academic route to get to, to where I am. Um, but I don't want to discourage anyone from the other routes that are available out there. And I, whilst I don't know much about them, um, I think an apprenticeship, you know, that appeals to me now, thinking about it, doing those, those uh, very practical-based, experience-based qualifications might be something I would do now over, over the, the more academic way I've gone up. Um, 
but maybe that's just where I am now. I've, I've had enough of sitting in lectures and listening. I want to do more physical stuff and actually apply myself. Um, it's hard to say. But there's, there's definitely different routes out there for people who learn in those different ways or it appeals to them in those different ways. And yeah, sitting in lectures, listening isn't the only way to, to get to that point. Good. That is a good answer. Um, and then one one final question is if you wish to, to disclose that how can what's the best way for people to reach out to you online uh online i suppose i'm on linkedin so by all means um reach out on linkedin um and i suppose in general other ways if you if you're interested in in joining mclaren or f1 then a lot of the teams especially us we have you know careers website which has graduate scheme information, work experience information, year in industry um, sort of information on there, and we accept applicants at certain times. I think there's even a webinar today on our graduate scheme um, run through the company that gives information on that. Um, but yeah, by all means, sort of try and track down my information on, on LinkedIn and, and get in touch, uh, and I'll do what I can to, to answer. Thank you very much, Nick. It's been a pleasure very interesting um talking to you this afternoon um thank you for your time thank you yeah likewise it's been great lovely to meet you all and um yeah it's been a, a really interesting chat thanks for listening to this episode of the engineering stories podcast we hope it's given you some insight into another area of engineering if you're still here at this point we must be doing something right so stay tuned for the next guest and in the meantime Share this episode with your friends and family and don't forget to subscribe.